Good morning, our Father's House family. Would you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1? I was in prayer last night and the Lord dropped 2 Timothy 1 in my spirit. And I want to minister from this chapter this morning. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Also want to be faithful to finish uh, the teaching that I've been laying out since uh, December about apostolic ministry. If you're just joining us, if this is your first Sunday, uh, I'm going to be sharing part four of a message called Becoming an Apostolic People because God is desiring to raise up and infuse his body with apostolic grace. He is desiring to restore healthy apostles in the earth. Would you say amen? And God is doing away with the old guard of apostleship. He is confronting uh, those that want a title instead of a towel. Are you awake this morning? 2 Timothy chapter 1. So I'm going to finish section 4. The first section was called... The ministry of Jesus, our apostle. The second was about apostles today. The third about the ministry of apostolic churches. And this morning I want to share with you the fourth section called the cost of ignoring, misunderstanding, or rejecting apostolic ministry. The body of Christ has paid a severe and long-lasting price for rejecting, ignoring, and misunderstanding apostolic ministry in the earth today. Now the word apostolic has been so hijacked that I have to clarify often that I'm not talking about a denomination, I'm not talking about a a, a group of people, I'm talking about the grace of Jesus who was our and is our apostle. Hebrews 3.1 says that Jesus is the high priest and apostle of our confession. So we understand that the Lord Jesus had an apostolic ministry when he was in the earth, amen? And that at his ascension, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers that would be the representation that would rightly honor and reveal him to his body. So the apostolic ministry of Christ did not die. The fivefold ministry is given until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the full stature of the knowledge of Christ. I mean, we have a long ways to go. Many people will argue with you that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer in operation today, but they have no answer for the fact that the fivefold ministry has largely been dismissed and ignored. And for those fellowships that use titles in their Uh, congregation, the only title that you often hear is pastor, and we call everybody pastor, and I feel that this has done a great disservice and only caused to confuse people, because we are calling people pastors who are not pastors, and then we are expecting them to pastor us when that's not what God has called them to do. And so we have a set of expectations, which is the breeding ground for religion, 
where we don't even know why we expect certain things of people, but it's just what we've been taught, and it's kind of what we just regurgitate and recycle through the generations. And God is restoring the fivefold ministry in the earth. He is delivering us from the one-man ministry. He is delivering us from the one-man band and show. He is confronting His church that is crying out, the show must go on. And He is desiring to confront His church who is going through the motions and sleepwalking through their Christianity. And I believe we are in the greatest hour of awakening, of revival, of reformation, of call it whatever you want. I'm not here to wash words with you. I just want you to know that you are a small part of a great work that God is doing all over the earth. This isn't an Avon thing. This isn't a Hendricks County thing. It's certainly not an Indiana thing. It's all over the body of Christ. People are waking up to the reality that we have built our lives and built our churches on sand. And I believe that COVID 2020 was an incredible storm in that year. I guess we're experiencing COVID 24 now because it continues to wash and recycle. And no, by the way, we're never going to close. If you want to stay home, stay home. God bless you. We're not here to judge you and criticize you. But we're not going to suspend the fellowship of the believer. We're not going to ignore what God has commanded us to do in His Word, which is to be together all the more as the day of the Lord draws near. Amen. So COVID-19 in 2020 was a tremor. It was a birth pang. You would be surprised to know how many churches were birthed in the earth in 2020, in 2021, and even 2022 as a result of the shaking of COVID-19. And you would be surprised maybe to know that there were quite a few fellowships and even denominations that were shut down, that were closed, that were crippled. So uh, we are speaking and ministering in the post-COVID, post-pandemic world. And we are trying to make sense of basically what in the world was that? What did we all live through and walk through? And I'm here to tell you that it was God just beginning to tremor and tremble in the ground at the return of the Lord that there is is an awakening and a stirring in the hearts of people and now is not the hour that you want to be sleeping in so I hope to wake you up and shake you up and encourage you to go all in for Jesus Christ after I ministered that word during worship this morning out of Matthew twelve thirty, where the Lord Jesus says if you are not with me you are against me I felt that the Lord spoke to me that the fence that some of you are riding on is your secrets. Now the self-righteousness in us always causes us to hear words about lukewarmness and words about whatever. And we just think of other people because that's pride. I don't ever want to hear a word in a meeting about lukewarmness, about being half in and half out and start thinking about other people. Because that just might mean I'm the one who's riding the fence. 
See, we have a really bad habit of hearing Christian truth and dodging it. And it's funny, people will come up to me after I've ministered and said, you know, the whole time you were preaching, I thought about so and so. And they can't even understand the pride that is oozing out of them with that statement. I don't listen to sermons. I don't listen to preaching for somebody else. I park my heart in the presence of the Word of God so that I can be cut and I can be changed and I can be transformed lest God was moving in a place and I didn't even know it because I was thinking about other people so I want to exhort you if you are here this morning and you have secrets in your life you need to come into the light into the healing power of God because what you hide reveals your pride and what you conceal God will not heal don't think about other people's secrets think about your own God wants you to have clean hands and a pure heart. It's the things that nobody knows about you, whether things you've done or things that were done to you that will keep you in bondage for a lifetime. I'm ministering healing this morning, not condemnation. Sometimes in order to get healed, you got to get cut first. Anybody ever had surgery? 2 Timothy Chapter 1, let's dive right in here, but first, let's go to the Lord. Father, we ask you this morning for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who you are. God, I pray that you would increase conviction in this meeting. And for those who would watch online either today or later, Lord, we ask for the precious conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, would you give us the fear of the Lord this morning? Would you drive out the fear of man? Would you deal with apathy and complacency and indifference? God, would you confront us for all the lame excuses that we've ever offered you? And would you help us, Father, to be sincere, to be genuine, to be authentic and real in our walk with you? God, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people. Lord, would you awaken me this morning? Would you humble me this morning? Would you do it in me that you might do it through me, Lord? I pray for the purity and integrity of your word going forth this morning, Lord, that it would not just be your word, but that it would rightly reflect your heart. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. 2 Timothy chapter 1, begin reading with me. These are the Apostle Paul's last words. Written sometime perhaps in A.D. 65 or 66, just four or five years before the temple is destroyed. He's on trial again. He's going to be executed. This is what church history tells us. And so oftentimes, someone's last words are very illustrious. They're very bold. I believe that this is the Apostle Paul giving his very best. All of Scripture is inspired and God-breathed. That's in this very letter in 2 Timothy 3.16. But I just want you to catch the gravity of someone like Paul the Apostle who is writing to his son Timothy, who's an apostle, not a pastor in Ephesus. Timothy wasn't the senior pastor in Ephesus. Just stop it. Just throw that away. Throw that in the trash can of your religion and recognize Timothy's an apostle. Titus is an apostle. Epaphroditus is an apostle. Should I keep going? No, no, we, we, we need to wake up. Pastor Topia needs to die. 
We need a revelation of the fivefold ministry so that the body of Christ can be united and can grow up into the fullness of Christ. But if you don't have a revelation of the fivefold ministry, all you'll do is just go into what you think God has called you to and you won't even know you're out of your lane because you didn't know there were lanes. The condemnation that many pastors live under is that they're expected to be all five. They're expected to give what the Lord is saying. They're expected to cast all the vision. They're expected to do all the hospital visitation, all the soul care, all the counseling. They're supposed to win souls. They're supposed to impact the community. Does anybody feel tired and miserable yet? We need a reformation. We need a systemic change in the body of Christ. Nowhere in the word of God is any one person the singular head or figure of the church. Only Jesus who is the head. So preaching team leadership is about connecting to, protecting the centrality of Christ. That he alone would be the sole figure, the sole pastor that we're following but we've elevated men and we've pedestaled people and we've wanted them to be God for us I'm concerned that many people would prefer the old covenant over the new we would rather Moses go up on the mountain please Pastor Joe tell us what God is saying so that I can live my life vicariously through your relationship with God. I mean isn't that why we tithe to pay the pastor to preach to us? That's all church culture. That's all decayed. It's decrepit. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. Let me remind you that I love you. I promise I'm not angry, but I am on an assignment. I've just had to make peace with the stuff that God puts me up to preaching. It's just better if I don't fight it. 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the conference I attended last weekend. By the denomination of people that laid their hands on me. By the intimate encounter I had with God in my prayer closet. What's it say? So you're either an apostle or you're not. We have a whole bunch of wannabes. The real apostles that I know never wanted to be. Because they understood the call. They understood the burden. They understood that this was a sentence unto death. To carry about in you the dying of Jesus that life might work in other people. To recognize that there's a whole host of privilege and liberty that you have to forfeit in order to fully belong to the Lord. In other, in other words, others may, but you cannot. So he's an apostle by the will of God, by the choice of God. By the divine choosing, not by desire, not by importation, not by somebody. No, by the will of God. Please get this deep down inside of your soul. You are who you are by the grace of God. It's wonderful to make peace with the call of God. It's also fantastic if you can make peace with who you're not. If we're going to get in our lanes, you got to know who you're not. This is what I'm not called to do. My God, I heard an evangelist one time 10 years ago 
A prophet stood him up in a meeting and prophesied a word. Didn't know anybody, didn't know anyone in the meeting. It was the word of the Lord to an evangelist. And God gives the word to the evangelist. And the word of the Lord that comes through the mouth of his prophet is that the evangelist is called to catch fish but not clean them. It was a good word. Catch those fish, bring them into the kingdom of God, but don't clean them. The evangelist took that word and sought to be a pastor after that. Why? Because of his own blindness and ignorance to fivefold ministry. If you're an evangelist, then win souls for the love of Christ. Be who God made you to be, but don't try to be all things to all men. You're not. Stay in your lane. Get in your lane. Make peace with God. This is what you've called me to do. The gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. They are given to whom the Spirit wills. Is that what the Word of God says? I think that ultimately we have a problem with God because we blame Him for why didn't you make me this way and we just need to say, God, I give up, I surrender, I want to be in agreement with your grace and I just want to function and operate in your kingdom as you've graced me to do. Why? Without the grace of God, you're just swimming upstream and it only gets harder the more you try. So Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus, not of a denomination, but of Christ himself, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. He says to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we've learned that apostles are fathers, yes, Apostles father and found, prophets forewarn and foretell, evangelists fetch and further, shepherds feed and feel, teachers form and facilitate. This is a part of their functions in the body of Christ. So Paul's an apostle and as an apostolic father he has sons. He has people whom he is raising up and training and ordaining and setting in because this is how the kingdom of God works. Now, I think it's special. Maybe this is too Bible nerdy for you. But I think it's really sweet that out of all the greetings that Paul gives in his letters in the New Testament, all of them say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Except for 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, when he writes to his son, he says grace, mercy, and peace. Paul is at the end of his life in these letters, especially 2 Timothy. Perhaps the gift of growing old is that God works his mercy into our hearts. Perhaps those God allows them to grow old because they didn't get it when they were young. And the mercy of God allows us to age so that we would learn and grow because God is a good father and he gives us second and third and 85th chances. Amen. How many of you are so glad God didn't throw you away when you messed up the first time? I think that's why we're all here worshiping. Because he's kinder, he's gentler, he's more wonderful than we could ever imagine. So he's saying grace and peace and mercy be unto you. Receive the grace of God this morning.
Receive the peace of God. He wants you to have it. He doesn't want you to live in turmoil or chaos or confusion. Chaos is for unbelievers. Peace is for the sons and daughters of God. If your life is not in perfect peace, find out why and get rid of what you need to get rid of or unfriend who you need to unfriend. Some people are agents of chaos and drama. You know what I do when people are prone to drama? I put distance between me and them. I don't have time for it. If you want to grovel and whine and complain and live offended, enjoy your life. But I'm not getting on Orphan Island with you. I'm going to be planted in the sonship and the blessing of God. Orphans are prone to drama, prone to complain, prone to whine, prone to wander. Yes, if you wander, you are lost. My God, how many, uh, not all who wander are lost. Well, I've never met anybody that was wandering that was found. What are you doing? I'm wandering. Well, then you don't know where you're going. But that's the kind of stupidity that the spirit of the age puts out there to tell you it's okay that you have no idea why you're here or what you're supposed to do. Because what the enemy loves to do is blind you from your purpose. He wants to prevent you from walking in your destiny. He doesn't want you to walk in the promises of God. He wants to blind you to the life that is in Christ Jesus. He does not want you to succeed and win. But God the Father truly does. He is a God who is for us and not against us. Amen. But what happens when your dreams are not His dreams? What happens when your plans aren't his plans? What happens if you've come up with an idea for your life that is rooted in pride and therefore God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble? What if the very thing standing between you and a breakthrough this morning is surrendering your idea of what you want for your life? Repenting for dreaming your own dreams Perhaps being seduced by the American dream. What if God's looking for us to trade all that in and live for the kingdom? I feel the Lord. Paul says, I thank God. Verse 3. Whom I serve with a clear conscience. Would you say clear conscience? The way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Some of you are overdue for a good cry. If you don't cry, you're not tough, you're numb. I told you I love you. Now, we have invented a false bravado in the church of Jesus. We need more men's ministries where men cry. If Paul could say that he was serving the Lord and acts with all humility, with trials and tears. And he's saying he's crying, he wants to see his son and the Lord, he's in prison. It's okay to be broken, but God wants you to be broken in the right place. So that you can heal other people rather than live wounded and bleed on everybody else your whole life. So he says, I serve with a clear Conscience. I want to ask you about your conscience this morning based upon the words that the Lord has been releasing. Where are you at in the consciousness of your own life? 
the Bible speaks about a weak conscience. It talks about a clear conscience. It mentions a good conscience. It also talks about having a defiled conscience. Is your conscience defiled this morning? Have you defiled yourself with what you've been looking at, with what you've been entertaining, with what you've been listening to? Have you defiled yourself? I I felt like I was supposed to tell some of you that you still smell like the world. And it's time to smell like other sheep and the good shepherd who loves you. It's time to come into the fold of the Lord Jesus. You can't have one hand in the world and one hand in the kingdom. You cannot straddle the fence. This is not the hour to play games with God. Thinking that you'll do it tomorrow. Procrastination is from the pit of hell. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Not tonight, not tomorrow. It says today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. I urge you, don't harden your heart. Allow God to soften and cleanse and heal you at your consciousness level so that you would not be bothered by the things that you are fighting off. I think that our conscience is most easily weighed before we go to bed. This is just me speaking from personal experience. What are the things that keep you up at night? What are, what are those nagging thoughts and memories that you just can't seem to get victory over? Perhaps your conscience isn't clear and God wants to wash you. And cleanse you and deliver you. Shame is is a tyrant. You don't have to live in condemnation. But in order to move into conviction. You're going to have to tell the truth. You're going to have to own it. You're going to have to take some personal responsibility. Which is the bedrock of real repentance. If you're still blame shifting. You're not living in repentance. Why? Because blame shifting is rooted in victimhood. And the enemy wants you to feel as sorry for yourself as you possibly can so that you'll never grow. Don't be a victim. Be an overcomer. For I am mindful, verse 5, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure... It is in you as well. This is a beautiful verse. Is your faith sincere? Is your walk with God rooted in reality or theory? We need more sincerity in the body of Christ. We need more sincerity in our marriages. I find that we run from the moment of vulnerability and honesty and sincerity. And many of us, we've learned just how to fill it up with humor and sarcasm. Sarcasm is the devil's substitute for sincerity. I dare you to write it down and live by it. People that are sarcastic have a whole lot to hide. Joke after joke after joke. Anything To not be exposed. He says I'm mindful of the sincere faith. Real faith. Authentic faith. Purity of heart and faith that's in you. 
And it wasn't just yours to begin with. It was passed down to you and modeled for you for at least two generations, we see. How many of you are second generation Christians? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high, because there's not a whole lot of us. You were raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Your parents trained you. If your parents didn't live it, put your hands down. No, there really aren't that many. I'm a second generation Christian and I praise God for it. Have you ever gone back and thanked your father, your mother, your grandparents for the heritage of faith they left you? You need to be able to trace your spiritual lineage. And if your spiritual lineage is defiled, I encourage you to break up with it. Maybe what's ailing you and plaguing you is that your faith isn't supposed to be your father's faith. Because his faith was compromised. Because his faith was indifferent. Because his faith was passive. And yours is active. And yours is real. Yours is sincere. It's a blessing to pass down a heritage of faith. This is why you are experiencing so much warfare. Maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about your kids. Maybe every attack on your marriage is actually aimed at your children. But we're so stuck in the moment of disagreeing about minutiae that we can't put it aside and choose to love. Does the scripture say where words are many, transgressions increase? Maybe the most loving thing that you can do is be quiet. And listen and have a constructive conversation. I'm trying to help some people. If you are not resolving conflict, you are a coward. If there are elephants in the room and in your marriage, if there are things that you don't talk about, don't touch, don't whatever, then you are avoiding your breakthrough. You ever heard the phrase, secrets don't make friends? Anybody? Well, they don't make for a healthy marriage, that's for sure. Verse 6. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh or fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Whose responsibility was it to stir up the gift? Was it Paul's or Timothy's? Was Paul saying, I need to visit you again and lay hands on you again? Or was he saying, you've got gifts from God, don't let them go dormant. We have a dormancy problem in the church of Jesus Christ. We have people that are waiting for another word and another confirmation. And you need to stir up the gift of God that is within you. Don't let it grow dormant. Don't let the devil put your fire out. Y'all, I'm telling you, I, I might just be on one and you can forgive me now, but I sincerely feel like some of you are so blocked from your next assignment and your breakthrough because you still have old voices in your life. I am trying to preach you into deeper friendship with God and new friendship with real believers. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. The word of God says it. I believe it. That settles it. I can't afford to have lukewarm friends. They might make me lukewarm. I can't afford to hang out with people that want to argue and whine and complain with Jesus all the time. I want to be fully devoted. But some of you are struggling because as you've given more and more of your life to the Lord, you find out that your old friends, not all of them are coming with you. I think I heard it said recently that your old friends, if they're still your friends, they either got born again or you didn't. Let that one ruminate. If your old friends are still your friends, either they got born again or you didn't. Win them, preach to them, and if they reject it, shake the dust off your feet and keep moving forward. It's painful, it hurts, but you can offer that pain to the Lord as an offering. I'm telling you, please, please get some new friends. There's plenty of people in this church that are walking with God that are on fire for Him. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, verse 7. A spirit of fear. A spirit of cowardice. This is what He's not given us. This is what you don't have. So when you're walking in timidity, who's fathering you? Not God. He's not giving you a spirit of timidity. God's sons and daughters are courageous. They're not cowards. We don't back down from a fight. We run to one. Not because we're brawlers and abusers. Because we're peacemakers. Peacekeepers look the other way. Peacekeepers stuff things under the rug. Peacemakers bring it out into the light and talk about it and work through it. Because truth is what sets you free. You've not been given a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline or sound judgment, sound mindedness. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. How many people are ashamed of Jesus? A whole lot. You know how you're ashamed of Jesus, but you don't want to admit it. You never share the gospel. The only thing that's keeping you silent is shame over Jesus. Fear of man is fed by shame over the gospel. I promise you it's really not that awkward. You'll actually have a lot of fun doing it. Just the next time you go out to eat, ask your server, Hey, we're going to pray for our food. Is there anything that we could pray for you about? You would be surprised how many people are still vulnerable to prayer. How many people are hurting and bleeding and struggling in their life and they're waiting on you to speak up and open your mouth? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. What if we had more preachers calling people to join with them in suffering? Rather than follow me and we'll all ride off into the sunset together and live an easy, carefree life. What if we've invented a faith in this nation 
that minimizes risk and maximizes pleasure. Because we've wanted it easy. Because we've wanted to enjoy the benefits of Christ's sacrifice and give the minimum back. It's everywhere. Voices of compromise are a dime a dozen. Voices that are going to tell you, it's okay if you have this and this in your life. They're everywhere. They're the loudest voices right now. But God is raising up voices of righteousness of holiness, of truth. I believe that many of you are here this morning because you are a voice in your workplace. You are a voice in your job. You're a voice in your family. You're a voice in this nation that's saying, I will not compromise, I will not back down, and I will not be ashamed of Jesus. But voices that will give you permission to live in sin are everywhere. Follow voices and follow people that are living a sincere life. You might not like what they say, but the only people that hate fiery preaching are those that are lukewarm themselves. Oh, I've heard it all. Well, we take accountability too seriously. So we care about your soul too much? Like I'm going to stand before Jesus in judgment and he's going to say, you told my people the truth too much. I, I, I wanted you to lie to them. I wanted you to deceive them. I wanted you to look the other way while they were perishing. That ain't Jesus. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. That's not Jesus, the Son of God, root of David, who rose from the dead. That's another Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. You know who wants you to make sin not a big deal? Jezebel. So that she can rule the roost. So that she can manipulate and dominate and seduce the sons and daughters of God. Who has saved us, verse 9, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Hang on a minute. Were you saved by your works? No. Did you do anything to earn it? No. I don't know why everybody is so deeply confused about this. But the word of God does not ever bear witness to a faith that does not produce works. Biblical faith is accompanied by works. If you don't have works, you don't have real faith. So it's not our works that save us. It's faith in Christ alone. And real faith in Christ will always produce accompanying works. Yeah, that's right. 
Everybody else is debating on social media. And here's what I've learned. If you preach obedience and allegiance to Jesus, the lukewarm crowd says, you're preaching works. Oh, I'm preaching sonship to the Father. Where you're not in idolatry and immorality and sin. Where you have one lover and his name is Christ Jesus. We're preaching loyalty instead of compromise. Verse 11, for which I was appointed. Can you appoint yourself? Just asking. There's a lot of self-appointment going on. <laughs> Y'all, if you walk up to me and you say, hey, my, my name is Prophet Bob, I'm like going, Meh. my name is Evangelist Susie. Meh. Why? We self-promote. Does the word of God say that your gifts will make room for you? Either God's not making room for you because it's not your time or you're not as gifted as you think you are. And you don't have the character to sustain the gift. And if God promoted you, it would destroy you. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. The word for preacher is ketex, a herald. A messenger, one who proclaims. In essence, Paul's saying, I was called as an evangelist, an apostle, and a teacher. Remember that apostles are the thumb. Apostles can touch the other four. Apostles can be very prophetic, evangelistic, shepherding and teaching. It's a part of the anointing that they carry, almost like a five-in-one tool for painters or what you use is there's an ability to touch the other ministries. And Paul's saying that God had appointed him and his apostolic ministry was that as there was need in the moment, if there was teaching, he could teach it. If there was shepherding, he could do the Caring. If there was soul winning, he could do the winning. Are you following me? This is a function of apostolic ministry. And it's why apostles need to be warned about pride. Because if you drink your own Kool-Aid long enough, you just think you can do it better than everybody else. And rather than fulfilling your calling as an apostle to make room for other people and to raise them up, you just build yourself a bigger platform. Ooh, it was quiet in here. Why? Because we have apostles seeking their own gain, seeking their own fame, rather than the fame of Christ. As God cleanses the church and confronts her, He's going to start with His apostles. And He's going to start with those that are false apostles. For this reason, verse 12, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed. Paul's going back to it, y'all. I'm not ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, Timothy. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Are you convinced that God can keep what you gave him? If you're convinced that God can guard what you gave him, then you don't want it back. You can give it freely and without strings attached. The worst thing that you can do is make a sacrifice unto the Lord and then regret it. 
The enemy wants you to regret going all out for Jesus, but I don't know anybody, not a single one, never met them. People that regret going all in for Jesus, you know why? They don't exist. Because everybody that truly gives all experiences the life, the pleasure, the healing, the salvation, the deliverance, the power, the anointing, the grace. They experience the love of a father who loved them when they didn't even know who they were or where they were going. You can't buy that with money. You can't get that from men and women. You can only get it from God the Father. He says, retain the standard of sound words. Verse 13. Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I carry a burden for the church of Jesus and it's simply this. Instead of retaining the standard, we have lowered the standard. Oh dear God, help us. We've lowered the bar so low that preaching like this feels mean. Our palate for truth is so small that if it's not encouraging, it's not God. We want to be warmed. We don't like to be warned. Is the New Testament a book of affirmation and warning? Is it a testament of if you continue in this path, you will perish forever? And God loves you. He cares about you. He loved you when, when you didn't love him back. When you were his enemy, he came after you. See, here's what I've realized about the body of Christ. Is that you can divide the church of Jesus into two camps. You have those that lack conviction and those that lack compassion. And normally the camps that are strong in conviction are weak in compassion. And the camps that are strong in compassion are weak in conviction. Am I preaching to anybody this morning? Does this make sense? I mean, you have the lovey-dovey church, the take-up-your-pillow-and-blanket-and-snuggle-with-Jesus church that just thinks it's our job to accept sin and look the other way. But then you have the church that loves to stand for righteousness and holiness and punch everybody's lights out. And if you're not uh, totally ready to get in the army of the Lord, if you're still wounded and broken, we'll forget you. And really, we think we're preaching truth, but really, we're just harshly judging and criticizing the world for being the world. And we make fun of the lost rather than love them. You should never tell a gay joke. It's not funny. You should never make fun of, of transgender people that are so confused and so bound by the devil that they're convinced that their parts and their biology don't equal their gender. We should have compassion. We should have mercy. Oh God, open their eyes. How many people right now are having life-altering, biological, changing surgeries and then regretting it and then saying, oh God, what did I do? And you can't put the parts back on. And you can't undo the damage of all the testosterone or all the stuff that you put in your body. And they're paying a price for the wages of sin. And they don't need us saying, ha ha, how's that feel? They need loving kindness and tenderness saying, hey, there's a better way. And all the shepherds and pastors said, Amen. That's the tension in the fivefold ministry, by the way. You can chew on that one later. 
We've lowered the standard instead of retaining it, instead of holding the example. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. How are you doing guarding the treasure that God's given you? It says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Be aware of the infiltration of the world when your guard is lowered. Let me give you an example. When you're laying in your bed at night, is your guard high or low? It's low, right? What do we love to do when we're laying in our bed at night? Scroll and get defiled by the world while our guard is down. And then go to bed and have perverse dreams and wonder what in the world was that? Well, it was right there. It was right in front of you. You can be defiled on five minutes of Instagram. You can accidentally, not even intentionally. Why, this is the world that we live in. It used to be that you had to seek this stuff out, but now it's knocking on every single door. You used to have to go in the drugstore and you used to ask for something behind the counter to look at explicit images. Now they're going to show up in your email, in your inbox, in your DM. And if you do not guard the treasure that God has given you, pirates of the devil will break in and steal the precious gold of faith in Jesus. Maybe it's not overt sin, but maybe it's just the thing that puts your fire out and takes the edge off. Nothing will dole you in your walk with God like scrolling for 30 minutes. I think they've started calling it doom scrolling. Where you just get stuck. You're in a trance and it's not the Holy Ghost. Maybe you're under a spirit. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Would you click on that page? Would you scroll like that if Jesus were standing behind you looking over your shoulder? What if he doesn't like to look at it any more than you do? What if it's about, I'm not going to defile myself. Y'all, if you have to delete your search history, I'm talking to you. We should be able to put our search history up on the screen. And except for medical reasons or whatever, you have no shame. We should be able to search your fridge and your freezer and whatever. Yeah, we know you put it in the freezer too. And have no shame and have no secrets and have no compromise. You are aware, verse 15, you're aware, Timothy, you know that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among whom are Phygelus. And Hermogenes. I'm tempted to call them Phygelus and Hermogenes. Because I just sound more gangster. Like Phygenus and Hermogenes turned away from me. <laughs> Have you heard of Phygelus? <laughs> Somebody look at your neighbor and say, You're Phygelus. <laughs> Don't be Phygelus. Taylor always told me that the humor I didn't plan was better. Hermogenes. Somebody please name your pet Hermogenes. What's the name? It's in the Bible. You haven't read it? You don't know biblical characters? How long have you been saved? 
Hermo jeans. You heard of skinny jeans. How about Hermo jeans? All right, I'm going to quit while I'm behind. He said, you're aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. That's called rejection of apostolic ministry. What church? Very famous. In the scriptures, they got a letter and Jesus addressed them as in Asia. Ephesus. He's saying, all who are in Asia turned away from me. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. You know that people will follow you and favors on your life, but when there's consequences, that when you're in chains, when you're struggling, you find out who your real friends are. He's saying he wasn't ashamed of my condition. We flock to people that are doing well and flourishing and we ignore the hurting. Because we often tend to value people based on how they benefit us. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. See, the church in Ephesus is on his mind. All who were in Asia turned away from me. Let me give you a few things about the cost of ignoring, misunderstanding, or rejecting apostolic ministry. Number one is that God's presence becomes secondary to the endless needs of people. The needs of people will dominate and lead a church that does not have apostolic influence in it. Because ultimately loyalty and devotion to Jesus wanes and the needs of people begin to take over. Please do not hear me saying that your needs are not important. Uh, let me try this side. Please do not hear me saying that your needs are unimportant. God cares and wants to meet your needs, yes? But your needs don't get to dictate what we do and don't do. I don't know how many people are like, I, 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 I have this need and therefore my need means you should start a ministry. <laughs> and they don't even understand that you're asking us to abort our assignment and chase every rabbit. Like y'all, we can't do it all. <laughs> Which is why we are one small part of the body of Christ. Which is why we're not in gangs and we're not competing with other churches. We want every church that God has ordained to be blessed and flourish and grow and catch fire for Jesus. We speak blessing, not curses on our brothers and sisters. And in the same breath, I'll tell you that it is the will of God that many churches close the doors. Because he's not there. And they are preaching another Christ, and God is against them. But the needs of people don't run the show. It's about the presence of God. What if what you need is God's presence made more real and more effective in your life? What if God is the one who wants to meet the needs of his people and really he just wants us to get out of his way? 
One of the most difficult lessons I've ever learned in my Christianity. Please hear me because I learned this the hard way and I don't want you to have to. One of the most difficult lessons that I learned in my journey is that I could get in the way of God by helping people. I was trying to rescue them from the discipline of the father. Like the father was chastening them and squeezing them and increasing the volume of his voice in their ear. And the compassion in me was like, oh, it's okay, we'll help you. People need to feel the consequences of their sin. Because sin is a horrible master. And if we rescue you from the consequences of sin, you'll just go back. What if what we need to eat completely is the plate of humble pie that is the fruit of our choices? And then when we've learned and we've grown and we've humbled ourselves and we've determined I'm not going to be like a dog that returns to its own vomit. I'm broken and I'm humble and I'm teachable. Like we want to minister to and help teachable people. I don't have time for people that are going to say, well, well, you didn't help me how I want to be helped. Well, maybe your problem is you just keep trying to help yourself. And rather than submitting to the authority of God's word and to the people that he's placed in your life, you don't really have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. When God didn't do something in the wilderness, who did they blame? Moses and Aaron. They basically said, your leadership sucks. But it wasn't their leadership, it was God's. They were just like middle management. I was in middle management for a time and it was horrible. Because all the people underneath me in the chain complained. And then all the people above me were trying to crush the people underneath me. And it was like, oh God, what do we do? Your leaders in the body of Christ need Christ just like you. Get rid of the pedestal and let's choose real honor. Real honor isn't found in some kind of forced ceremony. It's found in the posture of our hearts where we love and honor and respect people for who they are in the Lord. God made you that way by His Spirit and I see you and I honor you. You know why? If you begin to honor people rightly, the grace and the blessing of God, the gift that He's given them for you will begin to benefit you in tremendous ways that you can't even explain. But whatever you don't honor, you can't receive from. And the enemy will tempt you to dishonor the gifts of God that are around you. So that you can't receive from them because it's from Christ. Are you all still here? Father, help us to minister to the Lord. Help us to minister to you. We've ministered to people for far too long. It's time to minister to the Lord. Number two. This is the cost of ignoring, misunderstanding, or rejecting apostolic ministry. People remain immature and stuck in cycles of sin and dysfunction. Apostles are fathers and they carry a fathering anointing. They're advancing leaders and they help people grow up. 
How many of you did not have a father in your life? It was painful. You wanted an example. You wanted a model. Just because you didn't have a dad doesn't mean that God can't be your father. And that God doesn't want to father you through apostles in his body that would help you to grow up and mature and break cycles of dysfunction and sin in your life. It is very painful to watch people become what they hate. You hated the dysfunction of your home and it damaged you, but you just raised your kids in the exact same thing that you were raised in. Why? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Am I speaking English? If you don't do anything differently, if you just think you're going to just cakewalk through this thing, things aren't going to change. God wants to put a burden on the fathers and mothers in this fellowship. I want to give my children the kingdom dream. Y'all hear me out for just a second. Your goal isn't to give your children the childhood you never had. Your goal is to give them the childhood God wants them to have. Stop competing with your parents. Throw away the comparison to your childhood and say, God, how can we steward the gifts in our kids that you've given us? It's not about one-upping your mom and dad. It's about obeying the Lord. Number three. People become competitive, possessive, and territorial as traditional mindsets take over. We are not in competition with each other. The reason why we lack honor for other people is because we're jealous of them and insecure in our own call. It's really hard to honor someone and be jealous of them at the same time. I think you can't do it. So you've got to be secure in what God has called you to. That way we're not in competition and your wins are my wins. Can I tell you that the dark side of favor is jealousy? Jealousy actually follows favor. This is what Joseph experienced. The favor of God was on his life and his brothers hated him for it. God was wanting to raise him up. He was chosen by the design, by the purpose of God, and his brothers couldn't handle it. You'll have people around you that are your peers that just can't handle the favor of God on your life. But God will make you like Jesus through the jealousy of your brethren. God will make you like Jesus through all the Saul's. That once God began to promote you and raise you up, they became insecure and jealous. Because all they had before the Lord was what he did yesterday. Verse 4. Or number 4. Verse 4. Verse 4 of Phygelus chapter 4. Selfishness overtakes the body as people revert to meeting their own needs first. Selfishness is the cancer in the church. We have a consumerism problem, I'll call it a crisis, where people actually think the church exists to bless them and help them and promote them, and we actually think it's the church's job to make room for our gifts rather than God's job. 
Ooh, we, we think, well, I, I mean, you got Joel Osteen. And go, go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. Wow, fantastic. No, go where you are loved and challenged and called higher. Go where you're held accountable so that you can actually grow. But selfishness takes over, and we think that the church is for us. We show up to get our needs met. Y'all, I'm telling you, if everybody in this meeting were to show up next Sunday focused on them and thinking about them and getting their needs met, it would be a train wreck and a disaster. We are creating a culture here of people that are getting their needs met by God himself and therefore we show up not to drain but to pour out. To have something to offer. And it's okay if you're in a broken season. If you're in a hurting time and you need love and you need affection. Praise God there's other people that are filled up. But if you show up all the time drained. I love you but you're more like a leech than you are a Christian. You have people that literally their assignment is to suck the life out of you. Like they see the life of God in you and they're like, can I just bite your neck right now? I've had people show up to me in meetings and they say, God called me to attach myself to you. And I'm going, (laughs) you're like 75, old man. You ain't attaching nothing to me. No, that's weirdness. That's codependence. The goal of being fathered and mothered is to grow up so that you end up caring for your fathers and your mothers. My dad doesn't buy me anything anymore. He asked me this week to pick him up something from the store and he said, oh, please let me pay you. And I just laughed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do, dad. After all the lessons and all the love and all the diapers that you change. Yeah, hey, yeah, could you give me 20 bucks? Not. Because uh, my honor for my father far outweighs $20. Because I've grown up and now it's my job to take care of you. That's how the spirit of the father gets reproduced in you. If you're like waiting to become fatherly, well, today's your day. God the father wants to put the spirit of the father inside of his sons and daughters. So that we could care and nurture and raise up and challenge and encourage those around us. If you still think the goal, the happiness, is doing more for yourself, you are sentenced to a lifetime of misery. The key to happiness isn't doing more for you, it's actually serving God and laying your life out for others. I'm telling you, it's a lot of fun. It's a joy and honor and a privilege. Number five, apathy, complacency, boredom set in as spiritual blindness rules over people. Apostles are called and prophets as well to promote loyalty to God at all costs. Apostles carry an anointing to break open regions and cities and places. And promote faithfulness unto God. 
Apostles and prophets are really good at preaching people off the fence. Why? Because apostles are burdened for maturity, but also to eliminate neutrality. This is their anointing given to them. Did Jesus do that? Did Christ the apostle say to a large crowd, eat my flesh and drink my blood? And if you don't, you have no part in me. And I love it. The guys are like, hey, are you aware that they're offended you said that? And he doesn't go, oh, no, people got offended. We should send them a letter. I can't believe it, Father, I hurt someone's feelings. No, they're actually like, uh, this is a difficult statement, Lord. And Jesus, the most secure leader that has ever been, says, you guys want to leave too? I mean, in my head, I think he's like propped open the door. You guys headed out as well? But our version of leadership is like, oh, please don't leave. I mean, we're desperate. We need people here. If there's not more than 100 people, I just, my, my uh, ego can't handle it. You know what planting a church trains you to do? Not care who's there or who's not there. We, we, it's not about money and numbers. Why? We never had money and numbers. We had 14 people in a room and eight of them had my last name. You go, Polly. We believe in you. Woo! And now I preach to thousands and it doesn't even matter. I, it's funny. It's like people are nervous for me. Like they're coming up to me and they're like, hey, you can do this. I'm like, are you all right? <laughs> I mean, I know you're trying to encourage me, but j- just hear me out. It doesn't matter who's in the room or not in the room. I see Jesus draw large crowds and thin them. What if our churches are just too big for real discipleship? Big enough to herd cattle. 50 minutes of hemming and hawing can't be longer than an hour. We got to get you in because the next crowd's coming in. Oh, we traded the cloud for the crowd. We kicked God out of his own house because we think we can do it better. God help us. We've paid a high price for rejecting apostles and prophets in the earth. Number six, fear and or greed corrupts the stewardship of church finances. You see in the New Testament in Acts chapter 4, they come and they lay their money down at the apostles' feet. There was a stewardship that God entrusted the apostles with. Because there's a grace and anointing not to keep it for themselves, but to give it away. You know how many churches God will not and cannot move in? And what is separating the people from a move of God in that fellowship is the money? No, if we did that, it would cost too much. Allow me to be honest with you. You can't stop me anyway. You can leave and we bless you and we love you. But every time the Holy Spirit moves and we have an an outpouring service that's unstructured, you know the offerings are substantially lower. And then I always wonder to myself, are that many people honestly giving to this fellowship because they feel compelled or embarrassed at a basket passing in front of them? 
You've either got a conviction under the Lord about your finances or you don't. Nobody has to remind me to give to Jesus. Jesus reminds me to give to Jesus. So that I'm not corrupted by the fear of lack or greed for more. How much money is too money is too much money for you? Well, I guess it's whatever dollar amount robs you of your loyalty to God. Some people can have ten million dollars and be unmoved. Some people can get a thousand dollars and lose their mind. Because it's about faithfulness to God. Jesus said, if you cannot handle the riches of man. If you can't steward what you can see, he says, who will entrust the true riches to you? What if we lack in our spiritual life because things are off kilter in our finances? We're not passing more baskets. I'm on a track to trust God. I'm planning by the end of 2024, I won't even take a salary from this place. God has stirred up a faith in me and a trust. I'm going to fulfill the call of God. This isn't so that you all can give more money to the church. It's so that you're not corrupted by the spirit of the age and greed. This is real discipleship talk. Christ isn't real to you if your wallet's not surrendered to him. This is biblical fact. Jesus said you can't love God and not sex, not fame, money, mammon, wealth. When apostolic grace is evicted, fear or greed begins to take over the stewardship of church finances. Y'all, we had the most generous year we've ever had in 2023. And by God, we're going to have an even more generous year in 2024. We're going to make more of a difference, more of an impact. We're going to give more sacrificially. And I was just crying and rejoicing, Taylor and I personally, about all the money that we gave away last year. And I was saying, oh God, don't let my heart fail me. And don't let fear talk me out of giving even more. But the voices that will tell you if you do that, you're going to be poor. That would lie to you and deceive you. That would talk you out of generosity. And talk you into frugality. Let's kick out frugality. Because it's not from the Spirit of God. Well, you're frugal? No, you're a miser and you need delivered from fear. Jesus isn't a penny-pinching God. And the father's not an impoverished father. Did we not have a testimony this morning that there was more than enough? God didn't say, oh, you need this. Well, here you go. No, he said more than enough. When he feeds the four and five thousands, there's more than enough. And he tells the disciples, go and collect the leftovers. Like, I just want to show off a little bit and remind you that there could have been more people here. And God the father would have fed them all. I promise you, you won't go broke giving unto God. If you do, I'll quit. Number seven, the lost, poor, and needy are neglected as the community remains unreached. Now, this may seem like, oh, isn't that what pastors do? No, I object to the 
picture of apostolic ministry that looks like ignoring the weak and the wounded and the poor. That's not what fathers do. Apostles are not CEO overlords that are heavy handed. Apostles are serving fathers in the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10. Write that verse reference down. Because it proves my point. Peter, James, and John meet with Paul and Barnabas. And they say, Peter, James, and John, we recognize you're called to the Jews. This is verse 9 of Galatians 2. And Paul and Barnabas, you're called to the Gentiles. And then verse 10 is very precious. Peter, James, and John tell Paul and Barnabas, make sure you don't forget the poor. And Paul comments and says, this was the very thing that we were eager to do also. So much for apostles being the guys in flashy suits that have all the money and pimp the body of Christ. That show up in six Cadillacs and Escalades and an entourage. God, please deliver us from armor bearer nonsense. If you're too big to carry your own Bible, you're too small to preach from it. I'm out to make friends. Now what I see is a body that's diseased. And it breaks my heart. We've traded gimmicks and games for presents. We've absolutely catered towards all the flesh and all the flash and all the stuff. And and we, we have forfeited the precious presence of God. Like if God's not here, I don't want to be here. I just want to be where the presence of the Lord is. That's what I need. That's what you need. You need a life-changing encounter with God. You really don't even need more teaching. We're drunk on sermons. We need encounter with God. We need more revelation and less information. Information just sits right here and puffs you up. Revelation gets here and it cuts you and it changes you. And Christ gets revealed in you. Number eight. A victim mentality pervades the body as orphans refuse to forgive, grow up, and overcome. Y'all, I'm telling you, there are entire orphanages called churches where it is the wounded warrior club and ain't nobody planning on getting healed. A lot of them are life groups and home groups led by shepherds that are wounded themselves and rather than healing the people, they bandage the wounds superficially and they make a safe place for people not to change. We have a whole generation of church leaders that are Eli's that think it's their job to look the other way at the compromise in their sons. That's not what fathers do. When the victim mentality takes over, which is the bedrock of the orphan spirit, you don't graduate and grow up and overcome Actually, what happened to you or what you've been through becomes your God. Your trauma becomes your identity. Your diagnosis becomes your identity. 
You trade your identity as a son or a daughter to God and you end up being defined by your trauma and God wants you to be defined by Him. He can and will deliver you, help you, heal you, grow you. Isn't it astonishing that the Lord Jesus asks people, do you want to be healed? Like, is that offensive or not? Can you imagine walking up to someone in a wheelchair and all the lifetime of pain that they felt not being able to walk and saying, do you really want to walk? I know this is tough, but go there with me. You have people that are wounded that want to stay wounded. You have people in dysfunctional marriages that like it that way because it affords them room to sin. Well, if I actually repent, things have to change. And I like my shanty. I like my shack of dysfunction. I don't want a mansion. I just want to stay right here and grovel. Because it's laid hold of them and become their identity. I want to call you up and out of what happened to you or what somebody did to you or even what you did wrong. Receive the grace and mercy of God that brings real transformation to your spiritual, emotional, sexual, physical, and financial well-being. That's the gospel of Jesus that heals all, that saves all, that delivers all. He really can heal you in a moment of what happened to you, of what you've been through. God can reach into that place and heal your soul. He can father you through the wound, through the pain, through the abandonment, through the rejection. You know, all the people that I love and admire, they have all have one thing in common. They've been through hell, but they don't smell like it anymore. They're carrying the fragrance of Jesus. Because they've not been defined by their pain. They've given their pain to the Lord and allowed it to accomplish its purpose for which God allowed it. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. What if life is painful because life is meaningful? And because through the pain, we're supposed to push through it and see Jesus Right there, calling us, saying, this life, there's more to it. This earth is not your home. Oh, if this life were pain-free, we'd all get comfortable here. We'd turn earth into heaven rather than longing to be with God. Number nine. Corporate prayer is abandoned and seen as just another meeting to attend. I consider calling people to corporate prayer the single hardest thing to do in ministry. It's harder than counseling passive-aggressive people, which is a close second. Because passive-aggressive people are never really anywhere. They're just always blowing smoke and gaslighting and pretending. And it's like, can you just say what you really mean? Now, calling people to corporate prayer, why? If we abandon the prayer meetings of this church, I just want you to think for a second. 
if our faithful remnant that showed up here every Sunday morning at 9 and wasn't before the Lord by 9.15 on Sundays or Tuesday mornings at 6 a.m. or Wednesday nights when we have corporate prayer, if the remnant in this body abandoned prayer, you would see a dramatic and drastic difference in our meetings, in our marriages, even in the behavior of our children. The presence of God would lift, the anointing would leave, the hand would pull off. Why? Because prayer is where there's nothing else to do but seek God. I find myself distracted in prayer like my mind and my heart wants to do anything but seek the Lord. Like it's like, okay, let's pray. Uh, uh, I, we got to get groceries. The milk in the fridge is expired. It's like, why am I thinking about this? The enemy's trying to distract me from doing anything but seek the Lord. What if we just said prayers, prayers at 10? That's our meeting. We're going to show up and we're going to pray. The early church prayed. They were devoted to prayer. It consumed them. They just wanted to pray. Why? Because the presence was in the prayer meeting. The most powerful encounters with the Lord I've had in this fellowship, the majority of them were during prayer. They weren't during worship. They weren't while I was poorly teaching. No, they were in prayer. Because God betroths us to Him. He unites us to Him. Don't avoid corporate prayer. Don't tell me you pray at home. They gathered together in Acts chapter 1. They were in the upper room together. They weren't all in their prayer closet. But we have wanted Acts 2 power without Acts 1 prayer. This place would flood if there were miracles, but not prayer. You know how you see miracles? You pray. God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and preach, will humble themselves and go to another conference, will humble themselves and fellowship, will humble themselves and pray. What's the solution? Pray. 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 We need more prayer and less playing around. Leonard Ravenhill said the church that's not praying is straying. The pastor that's not praying is playing. It's all fun and games until we go pray. Can we seek the Lord? Can we seek His face? Can we get desperate before Him? I want to see the anointing increase in this house because there's more tears in the carpet. Because there's more brokenness before God. But when you kick apostles and prophets out of the church, we stop praying and we start playing. And we turn church into a meeting for us rather than for God. Prayer is so difficult to call people to. Why? Because the only thing to do is seek the Lord. Prayer is like a mirror, and many times we avoid it because we don't like what we see. But prayer is the threshing floor of real revival and awakening. Prayer is the kindling on the fire of the altar where God can pour out His Spirit. What would it look like if a hundred people showed up to pray? Tuesday morning, Wednesday night is prayer. 
Some of you may have already determined I'm not coming Wednesday night because I won't learn anything. You might learn the heart of God in prayer. You might get revelation into who He is in a way that you never would from somebody standing and talking to you out of the Bible. I want to call you to prayer. And I want to call you to fast. Start with one meal. You don't have to be a hero and do a 10-day water-only fast. Start with one meal. Seek the Lord during that meal. When your jaws would be chewing, get your lips moving and pray and talk to your Father. Number 10. There's 25 of these. There's only 10. You almost made it. Corporate worship becomes dead. As people remain unmoved in body, unstirred in soul, and unprovoked in spirit. I told y'all corporate worship is where you find out who can see Jesus and who can't. Who can enter in and who can't. The reason why we open the altars is because there's a whole lot less people to look at when you stand here. Can I challenge you to not watch other people worship? Can I give you the encouragement that my mom and dad gave me when I was five years old and it was take your hands out of your pocket and raise them? That might sound like military to you. My God has set me free as a five-year-old. What am I supposed to be doing? Worshiping and engaging Jesus. You know why we close our eyes? Because we're not looking in the visible realm which is perishing. We're looking into eternity. I'm less distracted when I close my eyes, right? So we pray, we lift up our hands, we worship, we sing, we pour it all out on the Lord. And by the way, this is all biblical worship. Nobody's manipulating you. Nobody's hurting you. And by the way, nobody's judging you for how you worship and how you don't. But I am going to challenge you that love looks like something and it don't look like this. It don't look like this. It don't look like this. It looks like something like this. Go after God. Pour your love on Him. What if what's quenching our worship is simply the fear of man? And by the way, we do this in order. And if you can't be brought into order in this house, you just have a rebellious spirit. We're not going to be mean to you. We're not going to embarrass you. But if you're doing something that is a distraction, that's causing other people to look and think about you rather than God, we might ask you to pipe down. Like when I really want to scream and yell and give it my all, I don't really do it in a service. I do it in my car by myself so I don't scare my wife and kids. Why? Because I've grown and I've realized, you know what, this is about the body together, the family encountering God. I've had people come up to me in the middle of a service and said, the Holy Spirit told me that I'm supposed to get on the stage and do an interpretive dance. And I said, no, he didn't, because if you do that, everybody's going to leave this meeting talking about your dance rather than his deliverance. This is how we filter words, by the way. People want to come up and give a word. Awesome. We're open to that. But if you're going to exhort us about the faithfulness of God, you've got a real shot. But if you just want to make it about us and about people, there's less of a chance. 
because we want to go vertical as possible. We want to be as Godward focused as possible because I don't really want to stand here and think about my wounds. I want to think about the wounded one because I just might get healing for my wounds by looking at him. We need to see Jesus. God is releasing worship movements all over the earth. He's ready. I'm telling you, we have better Christian worship music than we've ever had. And it's only going to get richer and deeper and realer. I'm thrilled that so many musicians and singers are learning how to sing to God rather than about God. Like we're actually writing songs to the Lord like he's alive and real and we're worshiping him. We're not just talking about him like he's a, a nice guy who died. Final point. The church becomes an orphanage and playground for demons without the fathering of apostles and shepherding of mature elders. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, please hear this. The church becomes a free-for-all. It's an orphanage. There has to be mature elders and fathering apostles in the body for her to be mature and healthy. We want to make sure that this is always a safe place. Look here with me. A safe place for the hungry. A dangerous place for the lukewarm. What in the world? I've never preached from over here. I've never seen this side of some of your faces. You look good today. I want this to be a safe place for the hungry. I want this to be a place where when, when people are truly hungry for God and desperate enough to break in His presence, they don't get judged by other people who have it all together. But I want this to be a dangerous place for the lukewarm. Uh, th this really freaks people out, but I'm going to say it because it's going to provoke whatever of the world still alive in you. The church ain't for everybody. Hold on. Not all are welcome here. If you're a wolf, you're not welcome here. If you want to manipulate and dominate and intimidate and scare God's people, you're not welcome here. If you have an agenda to pick apart the weak and the hurting and the broken, you're not welcome here. This is what fathers do. It's a safe place for the hungry and a dangerous place for the lukewarm. Because you just might catch on fire for Jesus. You, you, I've never been this tall. Mitchell, what a life you live. The weather up here is different. I feel the wind in new places. That very strange phenomenon since I've been bald. Like, what in the world was that? I even felt the wind there before ever. Whoa. Thought it was revelation. Then when it's really cold, it's like being licked by the devil. Like, like icicles from hell. I think hell is actually so cold it feels hot. Just my theory. It's not a doctrine. Nobody leave. It's a joke. I just hate winter and the cold. Why is it a dangerous place for the lukewarm? Because if you don't want to grow up, you're going to be confronted. Not in heavy-handedness. Not with a heart to, to punch your lights out, but a heart to help and to care. I've told you multiple times, one of the most painful parts of ministry is having a front row seat to watching people blow their life up. 
and then argue with you about the dynamite that they just lit and stuck in the foundation of their marriage. Meanwhile, they blame her. Hey, I'm speaking truth this morning. If you submit your life under purity, there's confrontation. There's purity in the leadership and the fellowship of this house. Why? Because we keep one another accountable. Because we ask one another the hard questions. Because there's real room and grace to grow. Please don't hear me say that we're all excited about rebuking people and correcting people. No, it's heartbreaking. It grieves the heart of God. There's sorrow in the heart of the Father. When we refuse to grow up. But God wants all his children to rise to the fullness of the stature of Christ. To put off the old self and put on Jesus Christ. To be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Other places might look the other way and ignore self-destruction and self-pity and sin. We don't know how to do that because we're too afraid of Jesus. Because we fear God too much. I think about standing in front of Jesus and being judged almost if not every single day of my life. You're not going to stand before a council of your peers. It's not going to matter in that day what anybody else thought of you. It's going to matter what Jesus said and thought of you. And did you do what he told you to do? Did you steward well what he gave you? I don't want to bury my talent in the ground because of fear. I want to steward it well and be a faithful steward in the house of God that loves people enough to tell them the truth. Would you stand? Father, I thank you, Lord, for the transition here that continues to take place in this house. And Lord, I thank you for our elders that are being ordained next week. God, I thank you. I bless those men and their wives. And I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their yes. I thank you, Lord, that they're shepherds after your own heart. And they're not cowards. They're not bullies. They're faithful, humble, gentle men. And women of God, Lord, I thank you. And I ask, Lord, that this would always be a house of reformation. That this would always be a house that has the DNA of your kingdom in it. God, I pray that you would deliver our Father's house from every root of religious tradition, from every ounce of practicing rebellion and witchcraft and sin. God, I pray that you would make us a humble people, a generous people, a holy people unto you. Father, I pray that all the mixture, that all the secrets, that all the games that we've been playing would be flushed out today. And into the light, Lord, make us a pure and spotless bride. Make us a people that have made themselves ready. God, I pray that the fear of you would be magnified in our lives. That we would not bow to the attention, to the affection, to the affirmation of people. But that we would live for an audience of one. God, would you unite us and betroth us to you and you alone. God, 
would you tear down our idols today? Would you break down every high place, everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of who you are, everything that would hinder and distract and blind us from a true revelation of Jesus Christ, God, would you confront and expose and assault and tear down these things in our hearts that we would be holy and blameless before you, Lord. That we would not smell like the world, but that our lives would be a pleasing aroma to you. God, would you restore the fear of the Lord to your church? God, I pray that you would restore apostolic ministry in the earth today. Lord, I pray that you would confront apostolic elitism. I pray, God, that you would break into every person that's called to apostleship and that you would purify and cleanse and wash their hearts. Oh Lord, I pray for the restoration of your church. That Jesus, you're shut up in heaven until all things are restored. God, would you restore healthy apostles, healthy prophets, healthy evangelists, shepherds and teachers in the earth. God, I pray even now that your voice would call out like it did to young Samuel, that you would call the names of those fivefold ministers that are hidden in caves, that are so wounded and broken they're not even functioning in your body. Lord, all those that have deserted you, that have quit the fight, God, I pray that you would rally my brothers and my sisters and that you would bring them back into the fold of the good shepherd. Lord, the hour is late. The need is so great. God, would you help us? To be a spiritually minded people. To not be seduced by the ways of the world and what we can see. God, I pray that we would be marked for eternity. And that we would live for you and you alone. God, would you purify and cleanse us from defilement and sin. From every defilement of flesh and spirit, God, cleanse us. Wash us and root us and ground us. And the promises of your love and your kindness today. We bless you and we thank you for your truth that sets us free. Give us hearts to receive, ears to hear, eyes to see. That we might not be blind and wretched and pitiful and poor and naked. And be telling you that we're rich and we're fine and we don't even need you. Awaken our hearts, I pray. Speak to us in the stillness of the night, in the whisper of the day. Visit us in dreams and visions. Give us revelation, O oh God. May the spirit of prophecy flow in this house again and again and again and again. In the name of Jesus, I pray. We pray. Amen.